Hey, Dr. Koontz, are the Quakers warmongers? <laughs> I would say that although they don't directly use the implements of war, yes, because they love to promote disruptive social and political change. And this leads to conflict where there was none before. So they're willing to let other people do the dirty work for them and absolve themselves <laughs> of that? Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. I first learned about effectively regime change in a class titled, in an Orwellian fashion, Peace Studies. How fascinating. Do you think the inner light has anything to do with the Illuminati? <laughs> no. Uh, George Fox predates Adam Weishaupt by at least a century, so uh, maybe a century and a half. So. Mm-hmm. And the symbolic uh, they, nature they, of Fox, is that anything? I'm just kidding. Just. <laughs> no, uh, he had a mystical vision on a hill, and uh, the rest is history. That so, happened a lot in the 1800s. That's right. Well, in this, yeah, he's 1600s. Oh, you can, he uh, predates. You can, uh, you can come up with uh, crazy destructive ideas all on your own is the lesson for the folks at home. Yeah, that, that's a good one. I was going to run with uh, worshiping Native American gods on accident don't go well long term, but maybe that, that's a little too <laughs> weird, too. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with Lutheran parochial education or not? <laughs> we hope not. But um, we talked a lot about Quakers at the end of last week. And uh, I apologize to anybody for whom that's just too obscure. But I mean, you listen to this podcast. So I figure you have a high tolerance for obscurity, a disproportionately influential group. Now we go to a group that is disproportionately lacking in influence. Despite their numbers, they're generally not even a single representative or senator from uh, states where they have hundreds of thousands of members. And that would be uh, the Missouri Synod Lutherans, who have, as they will sometimes remind you still, the largest non-Catholic parochial school system in the United States. Which would be really useful if it taught anything. <laughs> so the, the imbalance that the listener needs to understand is that Pastor Fisk experienced Lutheran schools. <laughs> I have basically zero experience, but have probably read more about it. So we're we're coming from two different informed but vastly varying perspectives. Today. That's exactly where I, I, I really want to have your hard edges put on my soft apologetic, if I can call it that. Because <laughs> because what I see is a, is a yeah. system that is definitely falling apart, that people are trying to save as if it's the church. Yeah. Which didn't do the work of the church for me or anybody else I grew up with. Yeah. And yet everyone wants to say they did and prop up this thing. And that doesn't mean I'm against, like, Lutherans having schools. Yeah. I, I'm just not so sure we can right now, especially right. given what we have being so un-Lutheran in its schooling generally for being the size that it is, and yeah. then its desire to compete with things like day schools, country day schools, as you talked about last time, that have endowments that are through the roof when most of our Lutheran schools right. are so struggling to make ends meet to pay the peanuts to the teachers that they pay with poor, poor healthcare packages and whatnot. And so that what they do is they keep lowering their standards left and right in every which direction to try to get one more kid to come to the class. And we call yeah. that mission. We call that mission. While our own children just fade away into the hazy steps of what Quaker Episcopalian Americana. <laughs> which is always uh, eventually like Buddhist or, or nothing. So <laughs> California. Yeah. So I, one way to think about this is that there's a time even before the existence of the Missouri Synod, which is comes into being in 1847, when there are Lutheran schools, but there's no such thing, just like with public schools, there's no such thing as a school system. 
So there's no centralized training organization. There are simply Lutherans and then they have schools. And in places where there were Lutherans prior to the Missouri Synod, most notably in Pennsylvania, but also like in the Shenandoah River Valley, you have anywhere that you have Lutherans, you have Lutheran schools. And the fight against the spread of public schooling is fiercest in the early American Republic in Pennsylvania because the Lutherans are tenaciously protective of their schools. The major factor to realize there is that that's not purely theological conviction. Where there's purely theological conviction in order to preserve a parochial school system or parochial schools, in the case of Presbyterians who have this intricate doctrinal system that's inculcated through catechisms mainly to the young, just like Lutherans and Catholics, Presbyterians are unable to preserve that system, even in the South, where they are very tenacious and well indoctrinated because the public schools are in their language and they're not apparently religiously threatening to their children. Lutherans and Catholics usually are trying to preserve some ethnic and or linguistic culture. And so they're generally better at keeping their schools because people can see why they need to have them in a otherwise non-threatening public school environment. How much is the Lutheran school in America a uniquely German phenomenon? As opposed to Swedish. Um, it is it is a mostly it is a mostly German phenomenon. That's true in Pennsylvania early on in colonial and early Republican days. It's very true in the 19th and 20th centuries. Scandinavian Lutherans are maybe the most successful assimilators of perhaps any ethnic group that I've seen anytime in American history. Even people at the time say so. There are some, you know, Yankees who just despise all immigrants except Norwegians. <laughs> so, <laughs> and when they assimilate, assimilation involves not just learning English or having sort of general sort of Protestant-like church habits. Like Scandinavians are okay with, even with like alcohol prohibition, uh, for example, which is pretty unusual in Lutherans. But they also very go to public And like so they're... they're well, that, yeah, that, that's a whole that's a whole riddle about Scandinavians. I can sort out another time. I've thought a lot about Scandinavians because I'm married to one. Oh, I'd love um, to hear it because I am one. So yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, I think the Viking thing was always uh, a psychological abnormality. I don't. I think they were just as like calm and generally nice even during Viking times as they are today. So, but any but in any case, they they assimilate. They go to public school. German Lutherans whether in colonial times or in the 19th or 20th centuries, don't because they are linguistically and in the 19th century, very self-consciously, ethnically right. distinct from mainstream America. Well, and so the, what's key there is to see how the Lutheran school system was an ethnic school system. Yeah, from so this is a, this is a difference and it's, it's something to think about if you have a school at your church or you want to start a school is that there's always going to be some mismatch between the really motivated people and the people who attend it to some degree in some proportion. So it could be that, you know, the parents who send their kids who are making a sacrifice. We talked last time, this is, you know, this is always a choice to sacrifice in some way, maybe lots of ways. It could be that 85% of those parents are completely, you know, theologically motivated, 15% or not. If you have a subculture, okay, in this case, it's an, it's an ethno-linguistic subculture. 
you're asking less for the sacrifice that's being made, okay? Because you you don't have to convince them of a long list of theological things they haven't or don't or, or won't have time to think about or, or actually, let's just be honest, some are just incapable of thinking that much about it. Because you're saying, if you send your kid to our school, he'll, he'll be like you are when he grows up. And that, that's a powerful motivation to any parent. And I think that there are cases to be made like that for lots of levels of schooling at this point in America, because there's so much insanity that is normalized. So if I want to sell a Lutheran school to a non-Lutheran right now, or to a vaguely indoctrinated Lutheran, which is lots of our Lutherans, I wouldn't start with, you have a divine obligation, Ephesians 6, to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and then go on for 45 minutes about that. He may have thought about that. I will say it and I'll say it first, but I would mainly sell it on the, hey, do you want your kid to turn into a transsexual? Yeah, right. Because we're not going to do that to him. It's actually kind of easier than it was in, say, 1981. Okay. In 1881, it's really easy because you came here from another country. You don't want your children to despise who you are. Mm. Send him to the Lutheran school. Yeah, right. Hey, hey, check it out, Mr. Atheist. Like at my school, you only have to guard against one thing you don't want them to know that you know what I'm saying to them. Yeah. At that school, it's like you don't even know. Yeah. You don't even know what they're saying. Yeah. Right. And so I would say I would say this is actually extremely savvy on the part of, say, the founding fathers of the Missouri Synod, which is far and away the most successful Protestant parochial school system. It endured. It survived. OK, the Dutch reformed, preserved something like this, but not nearly in the same proportion. And here's what's savvy about it. They have deep theological motivations for exclusively Christian education. Not everyone understands that. Not everyone cares about that. A lot of the people that they encounter, especially on the frontier, aren't giving their children any kind of education, public, private, nothing. Okay. How do they get, how do they get parochial schools in basically all of their congregations, you know, at the turn of the 20th century? They don't have to have everyone completely on board intellectually and theologically with everything they're doing. Not everyone understands what's going on. You simply say, we are preserving the culture that you yourself inhabit. And it's very savvy because they're indoctrinating the children into Orthodox Lutheranism. The children's parents are also being indoctrinated by a series of instructions that were normal on Sunday afternoons that people came to. But they're not requiring the parents to be these kind of like self, totally self-motivated, you know, reading theological books in their leisure time type people. I'm thinking about they fundraising just them, and all yeah. this other stuff you got to do too. Yeah, they just need them to agree that this is important and that they will preserve things that are valuable to these people of all kinds, theological and otherwise. And I think that was extremely bright of them. And it took a lot of work. I mean, I think a lot of people think that these churches and these schools just kind of popped up. It took enormous amounts of organization and work on the part of pastors and teachers who are often the same person in many cases to get this stuff together, to get it working, to get people to be invested in it. But that work was eased by the fact that the Lutheran school was never exclusively a means of theological indoctrination. It was mainly that, but it was also a means of preserving a certain way of life. You see something very similar today and there will be other points of comparison probably in this hour, between Lutheran schooling then and Amish schooling now. Amish schooling is intended to convey Amish religious beliefs, obviously. It's also intended to convey a certain way of belonging, which is mainly through the church. 
and a certain way of life. And it does that extremely effectively because when you combine both indoctrination, strictly speaking, with we have a way that we are collectively and let's preserve that way, then it's, it's much easier to get people to buy into it. I think, I think, let's say normal people, people on a bell curve of religious motivation, they're sort of somewhere in the middle, you know, they're not complete maniacs like, like you and I are, right? They're somewhere in the middle. How, why are they going to come there? Well, they're going to come there for some mix of reasons. These are the people they know. This is the way of life they have. And the Lutheran school, like the Amish school, was intended to preserve those things. And it, it's really no different with Catholics. So subcultures don't see unity as a sacrifice, even though right. they often are sacrificing to be unified. It doesn't are. seem that way yeah. because what they're getting in return doesn't feel sacrificial. It feels like a benefit. Correct. Yeah. Whereas like in Pennsylvania, the Lutheran schools disappear because the parents themselves don't even know German anymore. Why do I send my kid to this school to get, you know, basically the same thing as going to get at a public school in English? doesn't make yeah. any sense. I mean, what, what, you you said a moment ago, and it, it's a good sales pitch. Like you send your kid to our school because you want him to get married to a girl, and not yeah. You, know, some <laughs> you other want thing, him right? to right? continue being a man and marry Although a woman. I would tell yeah. you, if you're gonna let him watch TV all day when he gets home, play video games all day, do everything on the internet, it doesn't matter what we do in that school. He's still right. gonna be whoever he's gonna right. be. So, so I'm still not quite sure. I mean, as much as I want to promote education, I, I'm pretty sure that informed humans is a future I prefer. What's the purpose of a Lutheran school? I'm still not seeing it now. Like if you're in the in the in the weeds of it, where you're yeah. making it work right now, but next year you don't know, and it's been this way for 20 years for most of these right. schools. Right. Why? What's right. the end goal? Because it feels like a toilet that's spinning in a circle, a black hole that's sucking everybody's heart down. In the meantime, again, we're watching the congregations beside these schools go just as as well empty. Yeah. So not to talk immediately about financial considerations, because the major thing that changes for everyone as America industrializes and urbanizes is how much more personnel begin to cost yeah. and how much more running organizations with um, very key personnel, like a pastor or a teacher, begin to cost. Um, but to talk about it, let's say, more ideally or ideologically, the purpose of the Lutheran school is so that a child born to Lutheran parents becomes a Lutheran adult. And the major thing to recognize is that prior to the early 1980s, homeschooling is basically unknown in the United States, except in extreme situation, in situations of extreme wealth or leisure. In the case of wealth, it would be because it would often be because uh, the parents are traveling so much. So the case of like the the James brothers, where William James, the psychologist and philosopher I mentioned before, and his brother Henry, as well as their siblings, Henry becomes one of the greatest American novelists. They're effectively homeschooled because they're you know traveling around Europe and America all the time. In the case of leisure, your homeschoolers are going to be like pastors' kids, where the father has lots of disposable time. Prior to labor-saving devices, women do not have time to instruct children, okay? So not just to speak of like general education levels, as a farm wife in 1895 in Kansas going to be able to teach her kid, you know, anything beyond reading and writing. I'm trying it's unlikely. To eat. I'm trying to eat, yeah. right? But everyone is working too much manually, women and men, in and around the home, even in, a, in an agrarian society, in order for homeschooling to be 
anything that anyone does. That realistic. So, so what you're saying in a sense is that for homeschooling to exist, you first have to have public schooling fall apart as something that exists. And then having people attempting to retain what they saw as valuable once yeah. in that independently and outside of that. But it wouldn't arise normally except in elite you know, tutoring situations. Right. Yeah. I mean, and we'll talk about it. I mean, historically, homeschooling exists because public schooling begins to go down the toilet in the United States. I mean, can I just say again, though, it's like homeschooling is what elites used to be able to do. And now you can do it. And that's to me, that's a sales pitch. That's right. A sales yeah. Pitch. Technologically, homeschooling exists because manual labor saving devices exist right. because we have right. dishwashers and fridges and yeah, lots of things like that. Indoor plumbing. Schools exist, Lutheran schools exist, because we're not putting the burden of carrying out an education day to day on anyone except the pastor and or teacher. So I'm still trying to figure out then, why would someone who is not theologically intellectual want to be a Lutheran and therefore have their kids grow up Lutherans? You said, you know, the, the purpose of a Lutheran yeah. school is to raise a Lutheran. Well, who yeah. cares? Why? Uh, it, we, are they going to do drugs? They're going to have sex? No. Okay, I'll pay you to do it. I'm going to ignore everything else you do. But that doesn't make it a Lutheran school. Uh, that makes it a uh, uh, daycare. So yeah. So I I would say that something to note about Lutheran schools, as about all schools, prior, especially to the Second World War, but certainly prior to the First World War, is that everything is a lot more ad hoc than anyone gives it credit for. So the form of Lutheran schools in America is vastly predominantly a one-room school with an indeterminate number of children. It could some years be 20, some years it could be 75. Um, there's going to be one teacher in half of all cases up to the 1930s that's going to be the pastor. In the cases where it's not, it's almost always going to be a man. Um, in fact, congregations generally would not call a woman even where she was instructing. And even if she had graduated from Concordia Seward, um, she was not called because her great, her, let's say divine call was understood to be the potential of marriage. So she could leave at any time if she were getting married and that would be more worthwhile. Hence, she was not called. The male teacher was called. The male teacher also, at least in the very early Missouri Synod, was educated alongside the pastor, meaning in any given place, and this was highly unusual for any American, let alone German immigrants in 19th century, the pastor and the teacher had received what we would recognize now as a classical education. So the big divorce in Missouri Senate history is that while we had these kind of things that functioned in ways very similar to public schools, reading, writing, and arithmetic, within Lutheran schools, an extreme emphasis on Bible history and catechism as the main subjects. Okay, so that was very different. Curricularly, they were very different from public schools always in the extent and constancy of Bible and catechism and singing hymns. But the other difference is that our schooling system was set up to be run by people who were educated in a very different way from that. So at a certain point, if you were going to be especially a pastor, but even at some points a teacher in the Missouri Synod, you would go away from home to a boarding school in order to receive an education that was extremely heavy on Latin, Greek, and even Hebrew, in addition to German and English, which was de rigueur. 
And you would receive an education the like of which you probably would have to go to one of these New England boarding schools we talked about last right, time. Right. My, my father, by the way, is is one of these. He doesn't end up a pastor. He ends up an organist. But he was on that route and uh, mm-hmm. out of uh, South Dakota, small town, South Dakota. Yeah. And and so what what you're getting is someone who even if he's going to he's going to grow up and he's going to be, you know, in a you know, an isolated rural school in North Dakota for the rest of his life, unlike everyone else besides maybe the pastor in that place, that teacher is is going to be acquainted with a world of ideas right. almost nobody else in his state is acquainted with. Well, and let me let me point here too that so so my father's part of this is is the late end of it. So yeah. like the the pastor who was driving him as like a seven-year-old to play organ at the other church every Sunday mm-hmm. morning. And he's playing the organ as a seven-year-old who then sends him off or gets him connected to go off to the boarding school. Mm-hmm. Um, that guy's one of these guys you're talking about, right? Who's yeah. in that, that, that caliber and era of production or the end of it. Cause this is like 1940s, right? And you're really looking earlier than that still. But the, the system, I mean, it was, it was a machine until the forties. I mean, it really it was. was, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that there's, there's, at least two things to say about that. One is you're saying that even people, and I, I, I mean, I'm speaking in this, I'm speaking about this in ways that are maybe a little idealistic, but um, we're talking about the ideal here. We're not talking about, you know, did every single pastor read Hebrew fluently, but think about it in this way, as opposed to the public school, what you're ensuring is an extremely well-trained person for every school child, okay, at a cost which is fairly minimal. That's something to note: is that the cost of attending Lutheran school, like the cost of attending Catholic school, was generally extremely low. These were not set up for elites. Every Lutheran child could conceivably and was expected to attend a Lutheran school. And when he gets there, he's being instructed by somebody who knows multiple foreign languages. In the case of the teachers, they all have to know how to play the organ because they generally were the organist. The expectations academically are very high for the people that you are giving to even the most isolated community. Yeah, the idea is a really high elevation of the value of the human and the value of truth and a belief that you should send your absolute best ninjas down into the yeah. woods and have right. them teach everybody. Yeah. And, you know, it, it seemed like a good idea. It seemed like a good idea. And the other thing to say about it, about these sort of early days, let's say, especially pre-World War One, because at World War One, most most Lutheran schools, not all, but most are going to switch into English language instruction and that that subculture is going to begin to break up. But pre-World War One is that you don't have a school system. There are no there are no superintendents. There are very few high schools. There's almost no central organization. There's a teacher's college originally called a, a Lehrer Seminar. Uh, which is a German term in uh, Addison, Illinois, then River Forest, Illinois. There's no system. But what there is among the groups of teachers and pastors is mutual personal acquaintance of longstanding. And so there's an ecosystem that is generally very beneficial. It's not ideal. So these, these little rural places, people are always looking to leave them. That's always been the case because they don't pay as well as town or city churches town or city schools. But the idea of interconnected, I mean, let's just say it, an elite, an extremely well-educated elite that is interconnected, knows one another, is to some extent intermarried. 
serving a group of non-elite but thoroughly indoctrinated people is the way that it was set up to function. And it's very different, as I noted a couple episodes back, from how Catholics provided the same opportunity for Catholic schooling to all Catholic children. They used unmarried women, religious sisters, to provide extremely low cost, but because it was almost completely staffed, not run, but staffed by women, resembled in some of its experiences, resembled public school a lot more than Lutheran school did. Lutheran schools were completely male staffed to a very large degree, let alone male run, very local, uh, much more like a rural school, even in an urban setting, and generally one room. So graded schools uh, with multiple staff are pretty rare in the first, let's say, 75 to 100 years of uh, LCMS schooling. One of the things I find kind of interesting out of this, and, and I'll just be the one to step out on the edge with it. Yeah. That So it sounds like the, the pastoral office in the Lutheran Church of Missouri said historically, along with the called teacher, but seeing mm-hmm. those as a pretty elegant elite group, really for all of its uh, democracy, the level of democracy that's put into all of it, it had itself set up in order to to run what a, a civilization with yeah. a yeah. with an elite, a true elite nobility that were not actually elite in the sense that they lived on the ground and were paid probably worse than everybody, but they were to be interconnected <laughs> in a way which they understood that they were elite and yeah. they saw a, a unifying future. And that at some point that group realized this and decided to loot the whole system. And this maybe has happened twice in 1973, just the first time. Maybe 1940 was when it all started, though. And that's what I'm thinking, is that they got tied into the bigger game of we're elites. Oh, look who we can hang with in the Methodist church and the Episcopal church. Oh, look who they're hanging with. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's right. And this is an inside baseball episode. So I'll do some inside baseball here. Is that (laughs) um, is that what what you can see over time is that. Sons of men who were content to go through these systems and then, you know, devote themselves to 45 years in an obscure place, eventually, especially once English is the language that people kind of think in, live in, is that they want to get out of the system. They want to use the system as a springboard. Mm -hmm. Um, A really good index of this would be Yaroslav Pelikan, who um, is going to die, I think, a member, member of the Orthodox Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a nice chair in Harvard or something, or is he Yale? He was at Yale. He uses, I mean, his father and grandfather are pastors within his even smaller subculture of Slovak Lutherans. And he's going to use this system, which which is going to give him enormous linguistic tools to get out, not just of the, you know, being a parish pastor, as his father and grandfather were, but also of really having to be around his own people at all. And so there is a, there is something where the bugbears of early days for a pastor or a teacher in, you know, rural Texas or something are going to be things like loneliness or, you know, they're going to love going to the pastor's conference and the teacher's conference because they'll have people to talk to about things that they're interested in. People in their rural area are not interested in talking about the things that they read about or think okay, about. I mean, that's kind of the the opposite side of this. This great idea: we're going to send these elite elite uh, soldiers yeah. down into the field, and they're going to teach everyone to build an army. It's going to be great. And they get down there, and everyone's like, "Go away! We don't care." Well, it, it, there there is definitely indifference, but I would say, even apart, I, I I don't just mean like that they're indifferent to theology. I mean that 
someone who spends his time thinking about how to farm cotton the best way is not interested in the same things that he, he can't be. He hasn't read. He, he can't, can't be. He yeah. can't be. And he doesn't need to be. And so that's also why things like conferences and the interconnection of these elites is so important for the preservation of the systems that they're building even before they are formally systems. What's going to change is both the investment of those people, those pastors and those teachers in these systems, formal or informal. Okay. And then as those things change, so now I'm no longer bearing the burden of loneliness because I don't, you know, I have all kinds of technological connections to other people. And also I don't have to ask people to be weird anymore, just go to public school. But even beside that, now I have the burden of deciding whether or not I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually asking people to belong to a subculture at all. And as that subculture dissolves linguistically, it's also going to dissolve theologically. And so this is where the argument that switching out of one language into another, and I think, I mean, the Amish are a tiny subculture. The Amish are like 5,000 people at the beginning of the 20th century. Okay. Now they're like 200,000 plus. They're a tiny subculture, but when they do make the decision in the 1920s to give up driving cars, what they're trying to do is to keep something that they can see disappearing quickly. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to do evangelism. They don't, they don't believe in it. Okay. So the Lutherans have a much different dilemma because not only are their children changing far more rapidly outside of the schools than they can keep up with, but the Lutherans themselves also have a theological obligation to reach people who are outside of that system, outside of that subculture. And so Lutheran schools are going to be affected by that because now you're bringing in people that, that have a completely different world with which they are familiar, which includes public school. And so the, the problem here where public school and Lutheran school begin to compete with each other, both on their own terms, right? Like enrollment numbers, do we have sports like the public school? Do we have this and that like the public school? Those sorts of competition, but also on the level of competition where, you know, it becomes an issue. Is the pastor somebody, is he a school guy? right? Does he support Lutheran schools or does he not care? All of that is eventually corrosive of the subculture, not because one answer is more or less right than another necessarily. I mean, I think it is, but just apart from that, but simply because a subculture is constituted by all the things you don't have to think about and don't have to discuss. Yeah. And once so much of life becomes so debatable, legitimately debatable in people's eyes, you can't really have a subculture anymore. You're now just serving people from a vast array of different subcultures. And that's going to be corrosive of a school system and a school network and a church body, I think, obviously, because things that were once given are now debatable. Yeah, right. Right. But that's yeah. the entire civilization, too. So, yeah. And this is where what we're talking about this week is not, I mean, it is inside baseball. It's also not because it's sort of the story of anyone who had anything that he cared about besides what the media was telling him. The reason to study subcultures is not because you're a member of all of them. Okay. Although in this case, most of our listeners are a member of this subculture that we're discussing today. It's partly because mistakes and also successes have probably been done before. So something, for instance, that I think is a mistake in the case of the Missouri Synod and just schooling of any kind is that we gradually, we have one kind of like very like dense subculture way of schooling in which 
we actually require people to send their kids. So if you don't send your kid to a Lutheran school before, you know, let's say roughly the first world war, you will be excommunicated. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because you are abusing. I mean, they wouldn't use that word. You are neglecting your divine duty. That's more, there we go. You're neglecting your divine duty to raise your child in the fear and admonition of the Lord by sending him to a school where God's name does not have to be named and he does not have to be indoctrinated into the truth. That's the rationale. Okay. Eventually, what's going to happen, and especially coming from my crowd, the English Synod, now district, is that their schools are never, they're not actually in the Missouri Synod. They're in communion, but not in the Missouri Synod. Mm -hmm. And they're in English. So they're not serving the German immigrant subculture. They never uniformly have schools. They adopt the kind of generic American Protestant thing, which is public school, which is vaguely religious, maybe even vaguely Christian, plus Sunday school. The problem being Sunday school was never intended to indoctrinate thoroughly. It was intended from the first, from its origin in 19th century or late 18th century England to bring in children for some amount of Christian instruction whose parents otherwise never went to church because by 18, by late 18th century England, you have big, largely mobile, very poor populations in cities that have no contact with the church because they wandered away from their, their parish church and they're in a city working at a factory and they, yeah. they don't go to church. And I'm mistaken. In that same story, it's not so much about getting them to believe Jesus rose from the dead as getting them to read and using the Bible to do it, too. There's a, there's a, there's a whole edge of philanthropy on this that mitigates the Christianity of it. And I think we got to give a hat tip to it, at least. Well, I, I, I think it's not—I give it more credit than that. I, they, they're, not, they're not trying to provide the kind of indoctrination that a Lutheran school was ever intended to do. Or, in the case of England, Church of England schools— were intended to do. It was very basic Mm -hmm. communication of the gospel alongside basic reading and writing. That's what it was for. It's interesting. Just to throw in my experience now is that if you generally, if you were to suggest not having Sunday school, you'd be better off not having services. Like the church collapse is the end of Christianity. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria and so on. Right. Which is the dip, which is a complete flip Mm-hmm. from the early Missouri Synod, where Sunday schools are actually suspicious, yeah. except for the English Synod, which is its own thing. Remember, it's not really the Missouri Synod. They're suspicious because people think that they'll be brought in. And then if you bring in some lesser level of instruction, people will think that's okay, or that's sufficient. And then they won't send their children to the Lutheran oh, school. I don't know. I can't see that happening. And so, but what happens eventually, especially as the entirety of the Missouri Synod moves into English, is that the Sunday school really does supplant the Lutheran school, except in certain places and certain cases. And so people adopt the kind of general American model, which also happens with Catholics as they assimilate of my, my child's religious instruction involves whatever he picks up vaguely in public school, maybe nothing, plus Sunday school. I'm still not sure why we need to even have these things now. But I guess that's what homeschool is about a little bit. But then again, maybe not. You're not ready to go there, but I kind of am. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I think that homeschooling homeschooling presumes a lot about the parents, about the availability of leisure to them, especially. And homeschooling 
homeschooling is not asking the kind of upfront financial sacrifice born solely by the family in the case of homeschooling that apparently or ostensibly parochial school does. But it is asking a sacrifice generally of at least one income in an America in which really since the popularization of homeschooling, two incomes have been normal. That is actually a bigger ask in its way than parochial schooling. Um, the argument I hear from most women who are Christians in Lutheran churches who send their yeah. kids to other schools is, I couldn't be a homeschool mom. It's too hard. That, that, yeah. I've heard that from more people, and I don't say that to, to shame anybody. Yeah. I think they undersell themselves, given the fact that where we are in history and the kind of education we have, it's a unique opportunity we have to homeschool right. and, and really uh, level up an entire generation of kids to anybody who wants to. I'm not sure that's the answer to all our problems here, because then that leaves the common man, the common man, and it abandons this idea that that there's a unifying commonality, right? That right. We, can, we can work for, and I think that's yeah. maybe the better purpose of this hour. I just don't see where we manage to stay within the current education systems that we got, and and have that goal come through too. It just seems too convoluted for me. But again, I'm. I'm on the inside of it too much, right? I'm traumatizing all that. So I I, th I think that the connection and the, the reasoning that you just provided, the, the connection to something that will be unique when we do talk about homeschooling next time is that homeschooling and its rise in the conscious choice to homeschool also has to do with the vastly changed gender roles in the United States after the 1960s. And what we're talking about with the with Lutheran schooling actually doesn't. Catholic schooling, yes, because so many fewer women after the 1960s want to be nuns. But in the case of Lutheran schooling, Lutheran schooling's problem of living in and off a subculture, ostensibly to perpetuate that subculture for theological and other reasons, that already begins to evaporate even before Lutheran schooling explodes numerically after, especially high schools, after the Second World War, right? So Lutherans are still enjoying the, you know, fruits of the labor of, you know, Lutherans in obscure little towns in South Dakota, long after the subculture that produced those people and that sacrifice has evaporated, right? So even by, you know, 1960, you're still opening lots of Lutheran schools. You're opening lots of Lutheran churches. You're opening Lutheran high schools, which requires higher level coordination and cooperation. Okay. But are those things going to survive and flourish? And on what basis? Because by say 1950, 1960, that subculture not only doesn't exist linguistically, to some extent, it doesn't exist ideologically the yeah, way it at was. all, right? At all, right? Yeah. Because the the philosophy being taught there is vastly different, right? Than what's being taught in the same institutions, River Forest, Seward. This is a common. We did this with Quakers last time. We do it with Lutherans. The educational philosophy that they start with is very. It's specific to 19th century Germany about how you progress. It's called Herbartianism how you progress through stages of explaining things, going through things, dealing with pupils. But it's also theologically specific. What happens after a while, and you can see it especially the faculty at River Forest is sort of as important to the educational system as the, as the St. Louis faculty is to the production of pastors. 
the faculty at River Forest is going to become much more open, especially in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, to progressive education, strictly speaking, that is sort of, you know, teacher's college type stuff. And what that's going to cause is beginning to think about teachers as a sort of oppressed class. They've always had grievances, but this, this is going to culminate in a book, which is really informative if you can get your hands on it, called Powerless Pedagogues, hmm. published, I think, in 1972 by Stephen Schmidt, about the history of schooling in the Missouri Synod and about the teacher's role in that specifically. And I think the difficulty here is that you're now you're moving into an idea that you're going to think about the church in sort of class terms, and the pastors and the teachers are not the same class. This is very different from the early days. They're not educated similarly. One is receiving a progressive philosophy of education. The pastors are actually still receiving, even with lots of other changes, a fairly classical education. So their educations are very different from each other. They don't really know each other until they get to the site where, they're, where they have to work together, the Lutheran school. And at that site, the teacher can is much more dispensable than the pastor, just on sort of a bureaucratic basis. And uh, the pastor can vote in the affairs of the church and the teacher cannot. Uh, the teacher is also much, much more likely to be a woman by 1960 than a man, even to some extent in upper grades, although still different from the public school system. And so there's all these antagonisms and the subculture that perpetuated it is beginning to collapse. So the crisis exists independent of a challenge from homeschooling and even independent of public school as a challenge. Okay, it exists on its own as the group changes. And if the group doesn't any longer, especially, I think, understand itself, the pastors and the teachers together as existing to perpetuate the church, you're, you will inevitably have an existential crisis. Yeah, we have it. We do. And we have one over the word Lutheran straight up. It's the word yeah. Lutheran. We don't know what it means. We don't know why. And I'm actually on the side of saying it's, it's a dead man's name. But, you know, that's that's a big yeah. fight. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I think I think that homeschooling, you know, if it if it, you know, is seen as an alternative or or a challenge, much less neutrally to Lutheran school, not only should it not be in the sense that it was always um, it was always the parents decision to give their children a Christian education in whatever you know means were available. They, they do have a divine command to give their children a Christian education. The actual means by which that's accomplished is up to the parents. The issue, however, is that homeschooling and its advent has to do both with the technological conditions we talked about, but also with decisions about financial sacrifice and especially what a woman's role is in life that is separate from, not totally you know, separable, but, but separate in, in some sense, from the crisis of Lutheran schools, which predates even, you know, the explosion uh, of the theological yeah, crisis. But, but can you untie the crisis of American Lutheranism from the distinction between man and woman and are ultimately bending to that as a as yeah. a spirit? Okay, you know? so that that's that's a great question because it concerns something that I, I feel like I failed to say about schooling even over the past several episodes, which is schooling is... You know, and I, I schooling is about both sort of this, these practical or pedagogical details that I just personally love to learn about. But schooling is also a bellwether of something much bigger, which is how does a society or a subset of a society, a subculture treat its children and what does it envision as the future of its children? Okay. 
And something that you can see is that over time, concern for Christian education, let's just say that real as a broad term, apart from Lutheran schools specifically with school colors and Lutheran school week and stuff like that. Concern for Christian education is an index among the subculture of Christians for what the future of their children will be. As that concern waxes or wanes, you can see how much they think about the future, which tells you a lot of their other conceptions about what is the future for, what will the future be like, both you know, the future 20 years after I'm dead, but also the future within Christian theology of you know, judgment day. How do I think about what I'm doing right now, what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I'm sacrificing right now? How does that relate to 20 years after I die and also whenever Jesus comes back? And if, you know, the the default goes from being, okay, uh, you need to send your kid to this Lutheran school. We have this guy that's been preparing most of his life to do this. You know, you can work on your farm. We have this, you know, he's going to be here for a long time this kind of thing, right? That's the significance of the divine call for the teacher. Okay. Apart from theological debate about it, I'm saying practically it gives a person an incredible sense of importance to what he does with yeah, his belonging, life. belonging. Yes. And belonging. Exactly. Okay. We go from that to default for a Lutheran child is public school. So that's whatever it is in your place and time. And the purpose of school is probably to learn how to do something that's worthwhile so he can get a job. Right. Got to make money when you grow up. Okay. So now, even though nothing has ostensibly changed on paper, okay, his soul is obviously of less value than, than his grandfather's soul. Because all these people were doing, they were moving heaven and earth to make sure that his grandfather, like, learned a new Bible story every day or went over a part of the Bible that he went over four months ago, okay, in greater depth today. Now, we're doing almost nothing to give him almost nothing. And that's, that's, that's what I see as the broader significance of the story of education is it's always a question about what does a society think about its children? And to me, it's not at all accidental that we are a society that both doesn't want children by and large. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when they do happen to be conceived, we kill a certain proportion of them. And when some of those survive and happen to be born, we let them sort of grow up haphazardly. And you can see that in all kinds of groups. The subculture we're talking about doesn't say it's okay to kill your children, but it does practically say it is okay to bring them up haphazardly. Mm -hmm. Whereas it used not to, both individually and collectively, say that haphazard was at all acceptable. Yeah, treating American kids like free-range crops uh, yeah. is, is just not right. Right. I want to push on this idea. I wrote this in a while ago, but I think it connects here. So. I think the move toward homeschooling then shows, above anything else, a growing awareness of owned minority status amongst those who are adopting that position. That is, yeah. wherever they are, they're like, oh, we're a minority. Like, right. Big time. And right. they want to preserve that culture. Right. Whatever that might be. And again, this can this can change. The danger is it's awful small if you're not networking. Right. right. Uh, and then again, maybe that's its advantage. <laughs> Yeah, I think owned minority status is a, is a great way to put it because you're dealing with something that, and in the case of conservative Protestants, 
not so much Lutherans because Lutherans were such a distinct German Lutherans were such a were such a subculture, but Baptists, Presbyterians, I mean, this used to be normal. Like that was America. Yeah, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, a sprinkling of Episcopalians and Quakers. That's America. And now suddenly you're you're not just out of power, you are weird and probably threatening. So owned minority status is a good term. It gives a sense of self-consciousness, which as we talk about homeschooling, I think is both good and bad, but it is certainly productive for the future. If you're not in power, being aware of yourself as a group is one of the most powerful things you can do. (laughs) Because if you're alone and not in power, you are just about two steps at all times from destruction, maybe self-destruction, but certainly destruction. If you want to stay alive and even thrive, you have to exist as a group. You're actually, I mean, you're actually meant to be in a group. You know, you're a human being. You have a language because you communicate with people. You're meant to be in groups. And that's bigger than just your immediate family. And so you'll get all kinds of well-being from being in these groups. And this is why, I mean, let me say this in the context of Lutheran schools, the way that when I read memoirs of they're generally pastors, but also I've seen this in stuff about teachers, the way that they talk about conferences that everyone I know thinks of as more or less optional, certainly not morally obligatory to go to the pastor's conference or to go to the teacher's conference, you know, in the spring or the fall in the church. They talk about these conferences like they were just like the best experiences ever. And on some level, I get that even though I've never personally experienced that at a pastor's conference exactly, maybe with one or two exceptions, because this is when they reinforce themselves as a group, which was making enormous sacrifices for the good of a larger group of people. And that is a very powerful thing. Yeah, it it would be. If if you really believed it were the thing you were doing. Right. Which again comes back to like the collapse of words the inability of us as groups to retain common language, which just because we're nearing the end of the hour and I feel like it, I'll yeah. just lay it all at the foot of the TV. You know, we, we have a, a language devolution device. And I use TV fluidly to refer to talking pictures of any kind that effectively over time end around your frontal lobe, in my mind, and redefine words without your knowing it. And that's the real power of the tube. It, it can do it, especially given a long enough time. It normalizes new meanings to words. And so English is undergoing just an assault of the internet. I hyperized this an assault of decategorization of our meanings. And some of this is what you see with like the whole boy girl thing that's going on. But some of it is, is just it's harder and harder to make sense in English. And mm. you'll notice it's harder and harder to understand people, too, because they're starting to talk in dialects that are involving their either the way they text to each other or, you mm-hmm. know, what localities there. So all of that, I don't know if that even gives us an answer. It, it puts us in a really, really tough place where we're either going to decide that we know about words other people don't know about. Right. Or we're going to end up just following the lemons off the cliff. And we've been. You and I are here. We're shouting. And everyone's listening. We don't want to follow the lemons. Okay. So what that means is school's got to be starting from a very different foot than what you see out there. And so being normal is off the table, like, right Right. away. Yeah. There is a sense, though, in which I do think it's a lot easier than, you know, (laughs) 2001, let alone 1981, because the differences are now so stark. (laughs) And so... 
I'm thinking just first of all of trying to convince Lutheran parents who already belong to Lutheran congregations why a school would be helpful or important or why homeschooling should be considered. Again, for me, it's not the means of delivery so much as the the fact of Lutheran schooling, whether it's in the home always and only or in a school and the home. But in addition to Lutheran parents, also any parents, you know, if you're in, and this, this indeed did happen. Also in German, you get somewhat indifferent parents who don't care very much, but they agree to send their kid in order to preserve a subculture, which was German. And then they get Lutheranized through having that Germanic subculture preserved. Well, my subculture is not in German, but it does, it does include, you know, not endorsing chemical castration of children, simple as. So that pitch is one that I see as potentially extremely appealing to a certain group of the only people probably worth knowing in the next 20 years, which are people who are not completely insane. Is, is Luther's small catechism a sufficient symbol to form a culture upon? No, no. And it never was. And it wasn't intended to be. It wow, that's, presum- that's like heresy to a lot of people. So defend well, yourself. Well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Luther's small catechism, one, is intended to be an introduction to Holy Scripture. So I think it, especially in societies with mass literacy, calling it the layman's Bible as if that's all they need to know is wrong. Okay. I understand that that's in the confessions and I understand what that means. And I understand that as a modicum of memorized things, yes, it's absolutely essential, but. Isn't it along laity- the lines of like, if you don't know the 10 commandments, the creed and the Lord's prayer, then you yeah. can't really say you're a Christian. That's, right. that's more the idea, right? Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. But the idea that in a society where mass literacy is a reality, thank you, Puritans, not so much Lutheran societies, but Puritan societies, thank you. And so also America, where we have mass literacy, we should expect people to know what I'm talking about when I talk about, you know, the wickedness of Athalia <laughs> or the impatience of Esau, because you need to know your Bible, you're a Christian. So I want to expect more of people than some sort of mere basics that, you know, my three-year-old knows to a large extent. So that's one thing. But also, in addition to that, Luther did not intend the small catechism to constitute... Luther Luther got to run a public school system, at least through his influence. Yeah, right. right. We, don't, we don't currently run... I say currently. <laughs> <laughs> we don't currently run public things on the American continent. God willing, someday we will. Okay, but currently we don't do that. So currently we have to accept that we are a subculture. So we have to be more intentional about all of the culture surrounding people who know and believe the small catechism than Luther had to be. So so on this level, then I love this because I, I think the small catechism is the symbol you wave around to show that we're united and begin the journey, yeah. like you said. Yeah, yeah. But then the next answer, and I, I wave around an Augsburg Confession, too, in my congregation, but the next answer isn't necessarily Augsburg unless you're a voters member. Yeah. To me, the next answer is is very much what you, I think you're digging at, which is that the lore of the Bible is true lore. And you got whole subcultures of people who call themselves gamers and geeks because they like to memorize obscure stuff. Yeah, And they're right. memorizing obscure not real stuff. And where this hit me most right. is when I realized how much Tolkien I knew and how little about Athalia I did know. I like, <laughs> well, this is a problem, yeah, Jonathan. Right. You know more and more about Gondor than you do about Judah. This is not right. right. 
And right. somewhere that wake up, however it clicks, I'll tell you, yeah. if you can click it and you realize that's some real lore, dude, it's good lore. Right. Wow, right. it's a great lore. It's real. Right. Oh, my goodness. Like People are reading like video game pages. Like You go into this cave and you open a box and there's like a page that they like read the whole page on their screen. And they do this all the way through the video game. And then they go to the websites and they put it together so you can talk about the lore of this random game. You have the real stuff, people. You have the real stuff. That, I can't say it better than that, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and so the idea that, you know, you would have this enormous group of people committed to what outsiders are have always denounced as uh, obsession with doctrine, incessant internal purification, I think was the phrase. Yeah, although I know what he's talking about. I don't yeah, want, I do. You know, I do too. But, right. but this, this obsession with doctrine was the result of making that the primary thing that people intellectually spent their time on. And there are worse things to spend your time there on are, than the there Bible. Are. But again, I want to advocate that that word doctrine in our earbones means memorizing the catechism and that what people are hungering for is the story of Athalia. I mean, when she gets thrown off the, the no, it's Jezebel, I guess. Jezebel gets thrown off. Athalia's that ain't great either. When Jezebel gets thrown off that tower by her own maidservants, you know, and Jehu's like saying, who's for me? And all, I mean, there's so much there in the Bible stories themselves. Right. I've been recently, we're, we're kind of go over time here, but that's that's okay. Um, yeah. I, I've been recently trying to rediscover, this is going to throw people off when I say this. I've recently rediscovered Christian contemporary music just as a fling, just to kind of see what's there and uh-huh. feel some nostalgia from the 90s. You know, DC Talk, they were okay in their time. And and as I'm digging into it, one of the things that's fascinating is that the there's so much repetition, dear heavens. But like... There is a clinging to the lore of the Bible that I hunger for. That is, they talk about being a son of God. They talk about having the words of the prophets. You know, they talk about walking together in the way. And there's language there that is cultural language that's in the Bible, this lore of the Bible. And again, as we struggle to mean, what does it mean to be Lutheran? As we ask, how can I build a civilization? For me... I don't care if Lutheran's on the name. I want all the people that come after. I want my family to know who those Old Testament kings are, to know that that's the lore and lineage of Jesus of Nazareth, who's the everlasting, Mm -hmm. risen, ascended king of the world. And Mm -hmm. this is a secular podcast, so I probably should stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think that um, when you're thinking about the history of Lutheran education, you're thinking about a history that is in some ways dispiriting because... There's a constant recollection of things that are no longer true as hmm. to its size, its extent, or its depth. But if a lot of what we say on here is uh, a little depressing because of so much decline, I intend it to be, I hope, inspiring, and both in the sense of uh, what could be done, but also of what you yourself could do. Because if we're in the depths, then we need climbers, you know, or if there has been so much destruction, we need builders. And so I hope that you take from this a sense of what can be done. And when you're talking about what was done with many fewer resources than we currently possess, it was, uh, it was truly amazing. So I hope that the story is not quite so dispiriting, you know, even if you don't have the endowment or you don't have the pre-existent Lutheran population or whatever other conditions you think you need to have. It's kind of like having a kid, right? Like people used to have a lot more of them. 
And I think that's partly because there just wasn't a cultural meme sitting around that you have to have X and Y and Z and A and B and C and uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all in place before you had a single child. Right. They understood that in order to do big, important things, you need to accept that you don't know and don't have everything you need right now. So if you're wanting to start a school, don't assume that you're going to start with the big one, right? Maybe yeah. eight kids in one room with one right. teacher who exactly. is not necessarily a trained teacher, right? right. Uh, but in fact, as a parent who's interested in propagating Christian biblical culture within the congregation, preferably right. a man, it would seem, if you really want the, you know, the, the end game to be what the old game was. Correct. And you should see that as, as viable and real, even though it doesn't cost anything except for maybe the time and space and energy, you know, but that's how they did it too. Yep. Right. Yep. 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 Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the space devoted was basically always one room, but I think the energy was enormous, almost limitless. And then the, the kinds of things that you have to do when you teach a one room school are everything from building the schoolhouse to playing in all the baseball games to, you know, mastering everything from, uh, penmanship to drawing to uh, singing to organ to at least two languages. So this is where the, the homeschool to kind of lead into next time, right? Yeah, uh, is is a one room schoolhouse. It and is. especially yeah. if you get a couple kids in that thing. And uh, it's been really amazing to watch as increasingly I've tried to say, I don't know if this is Montessori or not. Freedom is not the all end all be all. But what I've, I've realized is that my attempt to entirely guide their exploration really hampers their exploration. And so instead uh, providing room for that exploration so that my kids are doing things like throwing axes, you know, as part of of the homeschool, that's what they want to do, you know? And then, so, you know, and we got, and we got geese that we could eventually eat with those axes. So don't, you know, you go easy all y'all, but like the, the idea again, that within the independent, not the sense we talked about last time, but the, the truly independent homeschool you can address the learning needs that are really prevalent to the present moment. Right. Uh, provided you're, you're giving them that, you know, your basic literacy and, and mathematics, arithmetic, which that's where you, you do need someone who's, who's full time. You need a parent who's able to do that. But after that, the, the, the exponential benefits of their, the learning process that they get from each other and from that, again, freedom of exploration combined with some classical ideas and whatnot golly, they love it. I mean, they, they sometimes whine about like, oh, I don't get to go to school. And it's largely because they read books about kids in school who aren't in class, but are doing bad stuff like saving the world and stuff. Like they break right. the rules and save the world. And so like, that's what they're longing for is again, the nostalgia. Uh, so let me give you one more question. You can respond to any that you want, but how much is Lutheran education and trying to save it right now? In fact, more nostalgia. Some of it is some of it is definitely nostalgia, which I understand because in many cases you have multi-generational investment in not just a Lutheran school, but in Lutheran schools as a system. So it's sort of the teacher equivalent of pastoral investment in quote, our beloved synod. And it's totally understandable. I don't share it because of differing life experience, but I, I totally understand it. Some of that is bound to be nostalgia. That's fine. I'm not against nostalgia. I think that it can be a very powerful motivation if it moves to something else, if it moves to rational reflection, if it moves to action, if it moves to the capacity to gather people into groups that actually accomplish things. 
great. Let it spur those things. Nostalgia by itself can be corrosive and is often extremely bitter because in the present, <laughs> it is inert, even incapable of movement. Right. It seems to be in, in the freeze quadrant of fight, right. flight, freeze, fawn. It's, it's freeze. <laughs> right, right. And <laughs> so you, you, you're frozen process. and you recognize things are not good and you recognize they're not getting better, but you have no idea how that could happen. So I think that nostalgia is just kind of like fruit that goes bad quickly. Hmm. It could be great, but don't let it sit there too long. You got to find the seed and go and right. plant it, it would seem. Yeah. So, hey, a brief history of power to white guys. You know where to find us or you would not be here.